three daughters is plenty for me, to be honest with you. Four might be a little too much, but uh, I did grow up with a brother in East Texas. Tyler, Texas is where I'm originally from. Uh, Waterburger country, if you've been down there, or Bucky country, but uh, I'm super thankful for this church. Super thankful that you guys have a new pastor coming in a few weeks. I'm so thankful for that. I look forward to sharing cheeseburgers with a fellow Texan, you know, in the, in the years to come. So another reason I'm thankful to be here this morning is I have so enjoyed getting to know Pastor Kevin since I moved here a year and a half ago. Uh, I brought Rodney Atkinson with me from our church this morning, so the prodigal has returned home here this morning. And uh, Rodney and I sometimes get to go to lunch with Kevin, and, and I think Rodney and I talk the same way every time we leave, that both of us want to be like Kevin when we grow up. Uh, just sitting there at lunch and listening to Pastor Kevin's heart for the Lord and for this church has been such an encouragement to me. Um, I want to age well as a Christian. I want to age well as a pastor, and so to see Pastor Kevin do that is such an encouragement to me. I love to be an encouragement to people. I love to remind people who they are in Christ and then try to help them live that out in their daily life. So in an, in an effort to encourage you this morning, I want to talk to you about persecution. That was meant to be a little funny, all right? Normally, when we think about persecution, it's not something we enjoy talking about. Usually it's not something we like talking about, but it's something we need to talk about because persecution is something the Word of God talks a lot about. My goal this morning is not to scare you. I won't be reading any statistics about how Christ followers around the world are being persecuted now more than ever. I won't hypothesize for you about what might happen to you or your kids or your great-grandkids in the future. That's not my goal. My goal this morning is to come at persecution from a different angle than you may have thought of it before. I want you to leave here this morning seeing persecution as something positive and not negative. That's the way the Apostle Paul saw it, and I want us to see it the way he saw it. One thing we know about persecution is that it is something we will all face. You and I will not all face persecution the same way, but we will all face persecution some way. And before we get to Philippians, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Don't turn there, but in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes that Paul writes about some things that are hard to understand. I don't think this verse falls into that category. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. This is Paul's last letter to Timothy. He's about to die for his faith in Christ, and notice what he reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. He writes, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. According to that verse, persecution is not probable, it's promised. So again, all who desire to live 
a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will not all be persecuted the same way, but we will all be in some way. And one way we prepare for persecution is making sure we understand what persecution means biblically. As Rodney and I were driving into the church this morning, I noticed that you guys have a Chick-fil-A. That's God's stamp of approval on a city, all right? And I noticed that there are two drive through lines, well, there are at most Chick-fil-A's because people have found out how good their food is. I've given so much money to Chick-fil-A through the years. Persecution is not what happens when you choose the wrong line at the Chick-fil-A drive through Maybe you've done this before. You pull into the parking lot, you go to Chick-fil-A, you notice there are two lines at Chick-fil-A, so you ask God for discernment, and I'm, I'm embellishing a little bit here, and you pick the line, you order, you look next to your car to notice the car that's next to you, and then as you make your way to pay, you see that that car is farther in front of you than your car. Listen, that's not persecution. That's God teaching you patience, all right? And sometimes we think about persecution the wrong way. And one thing I want you to do is to think about persecution the right way. Here's a quick definition for persecution that I have found helpful. In a commentary by Matthew Harmon on Philippians. If you want to study Philippians, you should get this commentary by Matthew Harmon. Here's what he writes. Persecution is any opposition that the believer faces when trying to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me, let me read that again. Persecution is any opposition that the believer faces when trying to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's persecution. And this is where Philippians can help us. Philippians is not a letter that is primarily about persecution. If you want to read a letter that's designed to help Christians with persecution, study 1 Peter. I think 1 Peter was written to help Christians face persecution well. Philippians is a letter that helps us stay unified in Christ as a church when persecution comes our way. So Philippians is more about staying unified and not letting persecution divide us. One thing we know about Philippians is that the man who wrote Philippians suffered a lot. If Paul had a nickname, it could have been Paul the Persecuted. Remember the risen Christ made it clear to Saul of Tarsus when he became Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 9. Immediately the risen Christ said, through Ananias to tell Paul how much he would suffer for his sake. So from the time that the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to Saul of Tarsus and turned him into the apostle Paul, from that time forward, his life was filled with suffering to make Jesus Christ known. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists some of the things he went through to make Christ known. Affliction, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, and hunger. What's the point? Paul knew how to suffer well, and in Philippians, he teaches us how to suffer well. 
You know what I think Paul thought when he entered a new city with the gospel? I don't know what he thought. I wasn't there to ask him. But this is what I think he thought. People are about to get saved, and I'm about to suffer. I think when Paul walked into Philippi, he knew, let's get it on. I'm going to make the gospel known. Some people are going to receive Jesus. They're going to be born again. People are going to reject Jesus, and I'm going to suffer. Every city Paul went, he suffered to make Christ known. So he's not a novice, guys, in the school of suffering. He's an advanced. He's advanced in it. And he can help us in Philippians to suffer well. One thing I know about this church, one thing I love about this church is that you go slow through the Scripture. At our church, we go slow through the Scripture. We've been in Romans for about a year. We'll probably be in it until my kids graduate from high school, all right? And so I'm going to go through a lot of verses with you this morning. Philippians 1, verse 12, all the way through verse 30. That's a lot of verses But what I want you to see in Philippians chapter 1, you can turn over there with me now. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, Paul provides his own example before he exhorts the Philippians and tells them what to do. Let me say that again. He begins with his personal example of suffering first, and then he says, now you keep doing it. And that's one thing I love about Paul Paul never told the church to do something he wasn't doing himself. And I love that about him. So here's the outline for the morning. When we are trying to live worthy of the gospel and opposition comes our way, we need to do two things. When we are trying to live worthy of the gospel and opposition comes our way, we need to do two things. Number one, learn from Paul's example. Learn from Paul's example. That's in verse 12 to 26. And live worthy of the gospel. That's verses 27 to 30. So when opposition comes your way for trying to live worthy of the gospel, number one, learn from Paul's example and keep living worthy of the gospel. Join me in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. Notice what Paul writes. He he writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, and I will rejoice." For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So what is that? That's his example, his example of suffering. Now look at the exhortation in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Let's pray together and then we'll walk through this section. Father, we pray this morning as we just read your word and now as I try to explain it, the Holy Spirit is the illuminator. So Holy Spirit, will you illumine our minds to understand these verses the right way so that you get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God called me to serve a church back in 2005 in Lexington, Kentucky. And after six years of being at that church, we moved to Hutchinson, Kansas. And my wife grew up in San Diego, so she was pretty convinced we were going to get struck by a tornado in Kansas. i got to be honest with you. But we moved there, and we were there for 10 years. And in Hutchinson, Kansas, there's a correctional facility that was built in the late 1800s. It's a maximum security prison surrounded by massive walls with barbed wire fences And the prison is close to where I used to take my girls when they played soccer growing up. So I want you to picture me driving in the car with my three daughters. They're about eight, six, and two. And when we would get close to the prison, one of my daughters called it jail, I would look in the rearview mirror and see the expression on my little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls' faces. They were scared of jail. They would ask me, Dad, what is that building? And I would say, girls, that's the prison. And they would ask me questions about what was going on inside those walls. They didn't know what was behind those walls, but they wanted nothing to do with it. They were scared of what was happening in jail. And I understand that. Reading words like imprisonment in Philippians chapter 1 doesn't normally bring a smile to our faces. No one enjoys prison. We rarely see words like imprisonment and rejoicing in close proximity. Isn't that true? What is clear from these verses is that Paul viewed his own imprisonment for Christ differently. What is Paul's attitude in prison? Is he discouraged? Is he depressed? No, he is delightful. So here's my question, why is Paul delightful? And here's the reason. Paul is delightful because the thing that mattered most to Paul was advancing. Look back at verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
if the gospel was advancing and Christ was being proclaimed, Paul was a happy camper. Paul put the gospel first, even if his own personal circumstances were difficult. If the gospel was advancing, Paul was rejoicing. I assume most of you support missionaries somewhere in another part of the world and you give to them financially, you pray for them, and it's not uncommon to get a letter from them at some point finding out how they're doing, updating you on their circumstances, and asking you to pray for them. That is basically what Paul does in verses 12 to 26. He's no longer with them. He's moved on. He's updating them on his circumstances. He's asking them to pray for him. But the more I studied these verses, I think Paul is doing something more than just giving them a ministry update. Stay with me here. Here is what Paul knows about these believers. He knows that many of them came out of a pagan background. And there was no suffering attached to the worship of these pagan gods. Worshiping pagan gods was an acceptable practice. Now these people no longer worship the pagan gods, and they worship Jesus as God. And now they have opponents. And I think many of them, guys, did not have a theology of suffering. They did not have a theology of suffering, and they needed one. Usually when you and I talk about being transformed by the renewing of our minds in Romans 12, we don't always think about how we need to have our minds renewed when it comes to persecution. We kind of leave that one out. We can't leave that one out. Again, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. And we all need a theology of suffering. And this is what I think Paul is doing in Philippians 1, 12-26. I think Paul is challenging them, and I think Paul is challenging us, stay with me, to adopt his thinking about persecution. Guys, we don't think of persecution the way Paul thought of it. How do I know that? I've been drinking coffee and reading these verses all week. All right? I don't think of it this way. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Normally, when we think about persecution, we just get scared and nervous and we don't want it to happen to us. We read about people in other parts of the world that suffer and we're so thankful to still live in a country where we can do this without threat of being arrested and taken to jail. And I'm convinced, guys, a lot of times that we fear something that is really good for us. No one wants to be persecuted. We don't wake up and think, God, I could use more trouble in my life. We're happy with the trials we got, right? And yet, if we are seeking to be loyal to Christ, you don't have to pursue persecution. It will pursue you. Aren't you glad I'm here? An example is Acts chapter 9, after Stephen is killed for preaching Christ, he lays his garment there at Saul of Tarsus' feet. In the very next chapter, Saul's on the road to Damascus with authoritative letters to arrest Christians and bring them back bound. That's persecution. 
Those Christians in Damascus weren't doing anything wrong. They were just being faithful to Christ. And here's Saul. He didn't understand who Jesus was. He thought they were guilty of blasphemy for worshiping Jesus as God. He's going to arrest them. He has letters to do it to bring them back. That's, that's persecution. Those people were just seeking to be loyal to Christ. Here is what encourages me about Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. It shows me that it is possible to be faithful to Christ... It is possible to go to jail, and it is possible to do more than just maintain sanity. It's possible to be rejoicing the whole time. This is what Paul models for us. Remember when Paul was in Philippi preaching Christ, he and Silas were attacked by the crowd. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown in prison. And remember what they were doing that night in Acts 16.25. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They did what our Lord told us to do in Matthew 5 and verse 12. In Matthew 5 and verse 12, Jesus says, When you are persecuted, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We need to remember this. When we are persecuted for doing the will of God, We are blessed. That's what Jesus says. And he tells us to keep rejoicing. When you suffer for Christ, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. That's what Paul did, and he models that for us. When I was in Kansas, there was a a man in our church who was an elder who had worked at that prison for many years, and he was retired. And he went back to the prison, and he worked in the basement in a ministry called men of grace ministries he was an elder at our church and he spent his retirement in the basement of that smelly prison and they gave him access to every jail cell he could go to and he would go around and he would invite these men to come down and do bible studies and it was amazing some of these men came to know jesus christ and i got to go baptize them my nickname was blake the baptizer And I remember baptizing the first guy. The water was cold. He had tattoos from head to toe. I don't even know what he did to get in there, and I didn't want to know. And I remember putting him under the water, and his eyes got real big because it was cold, and I felt like a real man. i got to be honest with you. And we saw many men come to know Christ through that ministry, and there was a man in the prison who came to know Christ named named Jerry, Jerry Thatch. And the reason I get emotional thinking about him is it was so strange for me guys because I was out of prison and here I am meeting with people in the church who are regularly complaining about their circumstances in life complaining about different things going on in their life and then I would go down to jail and there's Jerry and he is so joyful so people outside of prison were not rejoicing then I would go down into prison and spend time with my brother Jerry and I wish you could meet him. I mean, he just overflowed with joy. I remember one day he was telling me about all of his children. And he was only like in his early 30s. And after a while, I'm like, Jerry, how many kids do you have? I was concerned for all of these kids that were on the outside of jail who didn't have a dad. And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not talking about my physical children. I'm talking about men that I've led to Christ. That's the way he viewed them, as his children. And I learned from Jerry that you can suffer and it doesn't, have to take away your joy. Guys, the fact that that is even possible should encourage us. 
I want you to do something tomorrow morning. Hopefully most of you are not working tomorrow. Maybe some of you are. I want you to get a cup of coffee because that's how born-again people start their day. That's what Kirk tells me, all right? And I want you to get out your Bible, cup of coffee, find a quiet place in your home or wherever you like to read your Bible. I want you to read Philippians 1, 12 to 26. You just saw, I didn't go through it in great detail. But I want you to read through it, and I want you to ask yourself a simple question. Here's the question. Do I think about suffering the way Paul thinks about suffering? Just have a cup of coffee or whatever, tea or water, whatever it is. Read these verses and just ask yourself, do I think about persecution the way Paul thinks about it? If you don't, ask the Lord to help you. Ask the Lord to help you. Ask the Lord to change the way you think about it. Adopt Paul's mindset toward suffering. After providing his own example of how to suffer well in verses 12 to 26, Paul turns with exhortation in verses 27 to 30. So if we are going to suffer well, we need to learn from Paul's example. Number two, we need to live worthy of the gospel. Keep living worthy of the gospel. Look at verses 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also what? Suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So do you, do you pick up the tone of these verses? Evidently, when Paul was there, you can read about this in Acts 16, he suffered. And now he's moved on, and what, was happening, what happened to him was happening to them. Do you see that? Just as Paul had real gospel opposition, now these people have real gospel opposition. And they need this exhortation. Only in verse 27 comes from the Greek word manos, and it really means only this one thing. The idea behind the word is limiting the action or state designated by the verb. The main verb is let your manner of life or conduct be worthy of the gospel. The Greek word for manner of life is a word that the original audience would have been familiar with. It was a word built upon the Greek polis, which meant city, and had overtones of citizenship responsibility. Stay with me here. Whenever we study the Bible, we always start with the original audience and the, orig- the original author and the original audience. We don't start with what does it mean to me. We start with what does it mean. And when we understand the original audience, we understand something very important about Philippi. Paul is writing to believers who are living in a city that prized Roman citizenship. Philippi was a city where Roman generals went to retire that afforded them benefits because of their loyalty to Rome. So they prized Roman citizenship and the priorities of their life reflected their loyalty to Rome. Are you with me on that? 
And what Paul is saying is this, now that you're a Christian, make sure your loyalty is to your heavenly citizenship and not your earthly citizenship. That's what he's saying here. Prioritize your your kingdom citizenship more than your earthly citizenship. I have not said that word citizenship that many times in a few years, so thank you for bearing with me on that. You see what he's saying? Now that you are saved, the most important thing about you is that you're a citizen of heaven. Look at Philippians 3.20. He comes back to this. Look at Philippians 3.20, verses you're all familiar with. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is where? In heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Do you see what he's saying? People in Philippi, they prioritize Roman citizenship and their their value system reflects it. Now as Christians, we belong to a new King Jesus. We belong to His kingdom. We need to let our priorities in life reflect it. That's what he's saying. That's what it means to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. As I said earlier, I grew up in Texas, and as you know, some Texans can be quite proud of where they came from. I still have some of that in me. On Friday, I ordered a Dallas Cowboy hat to get ready for the season, the football season, and, and what that means now is that I've lost all credibility with you, and I understand that. And I have a golf belt with Texas flags on it. My daughter has a Bucky's stuffed animal. And I would rate myself probably as less annoying than some people who were born and raised in Texas. If there's a scale, I would probably be on the... I don't lead with it, although I've talked about it four times in this sermon. But to be honest with you, sometimes my citizenship of where I grew up comes out. It just, it just comes out because that's where I'm from. And what Paul is saying is this, if you belong to Christ and you're a citizen of heaven, that should come out in the way that you live. That should come out in your value system. You put the gospel first. That's the most important thing about you is the gospel. Amen? That's the most important thing in our lives is the gospel because that's the message God used to save us. And that's the message God uses to save others. And the gospel's more than just a message that God uses to save us. It's also a message He uses to sanctify us. The gospel that gave us life, listen, is now the pattern for our life. That's why in Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's what we know from Philippians chapter 2, and this is very encouraging. One day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. After Jesus humbled Himself, taking on an additional nature, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. After He completed the work of redemption, God the Father raised Him from the dead. He bestowed on Jesus the name above every name. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? We know that day is coming. Live with that kingdom mentality. Put it first. 
It's the most important thing about you. You belong to the king. You're a citizen of heaven. That has to come out in your choices, in your decisions, and the way that you live your life. There are two things in these verses I want to walk you through briefly that show us how to walk worthy of the kingdom. Number one, in verses 27 and 28, we stand firm and we're not scared. We stand firm and we're not scared of gospel opponents. Look at this again with me, verses 27 and 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you. Here it is, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And here, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. What does walking worthy of the gospel of Christ mean practically? First, it looks like standing firm in one spirit. And in this verse, when it says you, it's talking plural, it's talking to the whole church. It means you, 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 and you, but it also means y'all. As a church, we do this together. We don't abandon the faith when opposition comes. You know, some people will do that. Remember the parable of the sower? The seed and the sower in Mark chapter 4, some people look like they're born-again believers in Jesus, but the moment persecution comes, they defect. They were never believers to begin with, and persecution just brought that out. I've heard it said the only thing persecution can destroy is false faith. So we don't abandon the faith when opposition comes. We don't let it divide us. We stand firm in one spirit. Second, we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. What does that mean? We don't view people in the church as opponents, but teammates. Satan would love nothing more than for worldly opposition to divide the church. When we don't divide, but we stick together for the gospel, that is a mighty force for Jesus Christ. Number three, we are not alarmed or frightened in anything by our opponents. I thought about that this morning. Look at verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. I don't think that means we don't have to wrestle with our feelings when we face opposition. We will have feelings. I heard one time that men have feelings. Have you ever heard that? And when opposition comes, we will feel scared. And you say, Blake, where do you get that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul reminded the believers in Corinth when he was with them, he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul knew those feelings of fear, but he didn't let those feelings control him. So when it says not frightened in anything by your opponents and you have opponents and you feel scared, you just got to work through those feelings. Paul, the mighty apostle, the man who had been to the third heaven and saw and spent time with the risen Christ, knew what it was to feel fear. But this is what Paul also knew. He knew that God's strength is perfected in weakness. Friend, when you are seeking to live worthy of the gospel and you feel weak, that is exactly where God wants you. That is exactly where God wants you. Because when you're weak, 
What are you forced to do? You're forced to rely on Jesus Christ. And he is right there. He tells Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Oh, I love this part of the Christian life. I love this part of knowing that I'm getting into something I can't do and I'm going to need help to do it. That is so great. I get scared when there's things I think I can do, to be honest with you, because I'm normally doing that in the flesh. But when we suffer and we feel our weakness and we say, Jesus, help me. And he comes through for you. Man, that's, that's, the, that's the hot fudge on the ice cream sundae of the Christian life right there. If you like hot fudge, if you don't, it's probably not. You see what I'm saying here? You're, you're, you're going to feel those feelings of fear when people oppose you, when you're threatened. Maybe at work, you can't say someone's real name. You've got to use their preferred pronoun. I got an email about that a few weeks ago. What do I do? Or whatever it is, you're going to have those feelings. Work it through. Work it through. Go back to these verses. Remember Paul's example It's an amazing thing, guys, when we feel our weakness and the power of Christ is made known in our weakness. The night before the cross, Jesus talked to the disciples a lot about persecution. He said, the world will hate you. The world will hate you. But then he tells them, I have overcome the world. Remember this? And then he says, I'm going to send you the helper. It's to your advantage that I go away. And I'm pretty sure Peter got cross-eyed when he said that. What? He says, it's to your advantage because I'm going to send the helper. And, and Paul already talked about the Spirit of Christ in these verses. We have God living within us, the Holy Spirit, to help us. The Holy Spirit is the game changer in the Christian life. Remember the Apostle Peter? He went from denying Jesus to a teenage girl to proclaiming Jesus to the very people that crucified the Messiah. What was the difference? The Holy Spirit. The purchased Holy Spirit came to Peter and it emboldened him to witness for Christ. Friend, you need to remind yourself whenever you do the right thing and suffer for it that you have the power to endure because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Kevin didn't tell me how long I have to preach, so I've got about three more hours. No, I'm kidding. We're going to wrap this up pretty soon. Another thing I would encourage you to do whenever persecution comes your way for seeking to live worthy of the gospel, is remember God's future plan. God has a future plan for believers and for unbelievers. What is the future plan? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. This is a church that was facing persecution and affliction. And notice how Paul helps them in verses 5 to 10. It says this, their suffering, back in verses 3 and 4, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints 
and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. What changes when Christ returns? Everything. Everything changes when Christ returns. Gospel opponents are repaid by Christ with everlasting destruction and Christians find ultimate relief. We need to keep this in mind when suffering comes our way. We need to keep in mind that God has a future plan for believers and unbelievers. And when you know that future plan, you can love your enemies. You can bless them because you leave all judgment to who? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, right? You entrust that to Him. You know that on the last day, all wrongs will be made right. Therefore, you can rejoice in the Lord and you can love your enemies and leave all that judgment to Him. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. The second way we walk worthy of the gospel in these verses, in verses 29 and 30, is by seeing both salvation and suffering as gifts from God to make Christ known. We need to see both salvation and suffering as gifts from God to make Christ known. Look at verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You see that word granted? I don't know what translation you have. But in the ESV it says it has been granted to you. That word granted is charizomai. It's where we get the word charis or grace. And in these verses, Paul provides an interesting perspective on God's grace. Normally, when we think of grace, what do we think of? We think of Ephesians 2.8, right? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. We think of salvation as a gift of God's grace. We should think of salvation as a gift of God's grace. Amen? The thing that's interesting about these verses is Paul adds suffering to his list of God's gifts of grace. Again, maybe it's just me. I do not think of suffering as a gift of grace. I think of my salvation as a gift of grace. I think of food <laughs> as a gift of grace. 1 Timothy 4.3 says that food is created by God to be, to be received with thanksgiving. Amen. I think of marriage as a gift. I think of having children as a gift. Psalm 127.3, children are a heritage from the Lord. I don't always think of suffering as a gift. But these verses remind us that both salvation and suffering are gifts from God. What does that mean, Blake? You are never more like Jesus than when you suffer for doing the will of God. You're never more like your Savior than when you suffer for doing the will of God. And God uses suffering to do two things. To make Christ known and to make you more like your Savior. That's why it's a gift. Suffering is a gift because God uses it for you to make Christ known and for you to become more like your Savior. When we were in Kansas, they put up this big billboard by our house with LED lights. That was kind of a big deal for small town Kansas. 
And it, this thing was bright. I'm telling you, you come down the 30th Street after 9 p.m., and that LED board was so bright. And I've thought about this through the years. When you suffer well, that is a billboard for the beauty of Christ. When you suffer and you don't give up and you don't give in, do you know what that tells the world? You value Christ more than anything else. You value Christ more than anything else. Oftentimes it is the way that Christians endure persecution that God uses to lead unbelievers to Christ. This is what we see in Acts chapter 16 as Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God. The other people are listening, right? God sends the earthquake. Remember the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself. And what happens? They stop him and he asks, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I have seen that as Christians respond well to suffering, God uses that to save people. It's always the gospel that does it. But I've seen this. When people suffer well, it shows the world that Christ is worth it and He's worthy. In Philippians, Paul is calling the church to follow in his footsteps. Look at the end of verse 30. and He says, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Can I remind you this morning that conflict for the gospel is a good thing? I remember listening to a man teach on church history, and I love the way he described church history. He said, church history is about the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of darkness and pulling sinners out for his glory. Man, and there's going to be conflict. Satan doesn't like it. Satan doesn't like it when people are taken out of the domain of darkness and put into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He's going to push back on that, but that's okay. I would say to some degree, guys, if there's never conflict in your life over the gospel, you may need to go back and ask yourself, do I really believe it? Are my values really kingdom priorities? And again, I'm not telling you to go pursue persecution. You don't have to. You don't have to. Just be loyal to King Jesus and it will find you. This morning, I want to encourage you by asking you to please know two things. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So listen, you should expect it. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's a command. So from this point forward, there's no excuses. If you're striving to live a godly life in Jesus Christ and you get some pushback from the world, praise God, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. I also want to remind you from Philippians chapter 1 to see persecution as something positive and not negative. It's not a bad thing. It's a glorious thing to make Christ known. When you are striving to live worthy of the gospel and persecution comes knocking on your door, let me remind you to do two things. Number one, learn from Paul's example. Go back to Philippians 1, verses 12 to 26, and make sure you're thinking about it the way Paul thought about it. Isn't that good to know that there are verses in the Bible that help you with those specific things? And then number two, keep living worthy of the gospel and do it together as a church family because Christ is worth it. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. 
Thank you for this church. Thank you for all that you have done through the years here and all that you are doing. Thank you for your future plan to continue to use Plainfield for your glory. I pray for their new pastor as he makes his way here that there would be years of fruitful ministry coming for this church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.